parfait. Let me tell you for a start before I bring the panel in here. The Elf podcast and the Home and Away podcast have been deferred. We're on the air until we get through this opening World Cup game. It's Cameroon versus Argentina. Bit of a mismatch on paper. Defending champions with Diego Maradona captaining them. Fresh from his second Scudetto win with Napoli. Uh, Some of the players back defending their World Cup title as well, of course. So the Argentinian with a, a Pretty experienced squad. Mind you, noticed that only the eight players in their domestic league here compared from nearly double that in 86, which is pretty interesting. Their opponents, though, uh, Cameroon, as I said, largely French player, or playing in the French league, I should say, in the first and second divisions there. And the notable inclusion of 38-year-old Roger Mia, who was begged by the Cameroon president to come out of retirement. So he's probably the, the main story. Uh, in their squad. You look at the background of this, guys. There's there's some really interesting stories right thread. I mean, obviously, there's discontent in the Cameroon organization between players and the federation about bonuses and, and I think a little bit between the manager as well. You look at the manager's background here, Nepom Nyachi, always difficult to say. He was essentially sent over by the Russian FA. I believe Cameroon's FA requested that the Russian FA send over uh, some coaches. He was the, the first sent reading some quotes here from a piece on him, an unexceptional ex-player whose only experience of first-team management had been a single season at the helm of an obscure Turkmenistani club in Russia's third division. So they appointed a manager. Did he write his own bio? No, I don't believe so. Appointed him manager and and knowing, uh, like no French and and almost no English. So he he had to get apparently um, the man who normally drives uh, the Cameroon uh, Bosser, I think people from the embassy, he was the only one who spoke English. So he was then uh, added in as a translator. So really interesting, given that all that and the fact that he was almost sacked a few years before for the really poor showing in the Africa Cup of Nations. Uh, they were reigning champions and, and ended up losing to Zambia, Zambia, I should say, and Senegal. So really interesting that they come here in an absolute state. And from the off, they've got to take on the hosts. Let's talk a little bit, though, before we get into the match about the opening ceremony, because uh, this is not something I particularly remember. Yeah, it was. It, it was, as you can imagine, in Italy, it was a fairly kind of stylish affair. Um, it was all very, very well choreographed. It was in Milan, obviously, which is, I think, why they chose to go with a, a kind of a fashion theme. There was uh, basically most of the opening ceremony was a kind of catwalk show, which I think we would view very differently now, but seemed kind of par for the course. Um, it was interesting when they basically brought kind of whole troops of models out to represent each of the five continents. And the one thing I noticed watching it back recently was that the, the, uh, the models representing Europe were mostly wearing what looked very like a Rover's jersey. If you replaced the white hoop with like a see-through diaphanous lace thing. <laughs> um, which is one of the more unique things I've ever seen. It's also... That's next season's jersey. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, get on that. The alternate kit for all of <laughs> I think we're probably... It was probably 10, 12 years later, there was a notorious uh, wardrobe malfunction at, at the Super Bowl. There was a fair bit of very things that were very visible that you wouldn't have thought would be very visible. Are you, are you saying this inspired the greatest nip slip on the, the biggest stage ever? 
Uh, quite possibly, yeah. Although I think it was probably as premeditated. I don't think Italian standards around this kind of thing were, <laughs> were very different. But uh, yeah, it's also where the world got its first real sight of uh, Chow, the, the famous kind of articulated block tri tricolor based uh, mascot of the World Cup, which became quite an icon, I think, in a way that, that no World Cup mascot has before or since. It's still kind of a instantly evocative of, of Italian 90 and adorned all kinds of merchandise that you could find littering um, USA tin boxes and stuff for, for years afterwards. In, in it's kind of just the, the Channel 4 logo deconstructed really, wasn't it? It is. It's very similar. Actually, Channel 4, Channel 4 I think, drew inspiration for it when they began covering Serie A mm. a few years later. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the things that's sort of immediately evocative of Italia 90 and uh, I think you know anyone who anyone who grew up with it would be would be instantly familiar with it across the world so uh, kind of unique in that respect. Can I ask was there any sight of the Nanini Bonato song you know that because everyone remembers Nessun Dorma but maybe not as much that absolute I, I think it's a pretty good um, World Cup song actually that, that Italian hit but. Not to magic eh? yeah it was it was yeah. it was uh, it was performed live went down very well in the stadium um, they really went for it as well and there's <laughs> there's some interesting stories uh, about what the VIPs got up to at that opening ceremony apparently the toilets were absolutely littered with condoms afterwards so uh, you know they're, they're traditionally rather well I suppose it was a rather sterile affair but uh, but uh, yeah they're traditionally not Literally. that exciting but exactly <laughs> but uh, yeah the the, the well, can, can Robbie Williams or Pitbull claim to have had that effect in recent years? I would say probably not. Who would we have if, if Ireland had a World Cup? Who would we have singing the song? That's a good question. It's, it's, it would end up being Bono. No, it would end up, it would be someone newer, wouldn't it? Because that's where Pitbull, although, yeah, given that Robbie Williams has done it recently, probably would. Nathan but Carter. Picture this or one of them, one of them sort of, you know, indie new, they're, they're all very bland these days. That's why I think some of those older World Cup songs were a bit more, of their time classic hits because as long as it's not versatile then okay <laughs> right well let's jump into the game then Cameroon looked uh, fairly lively early on I think there was a little bit of a shock from the, the holders the, the effort early on cleared off the line by Lorenzo I think you can kind of see at that point the, the, the little bit of panic creeping in and I wanted to kind of jump into a bit of the conversation about Claudio Canigia's omission from the team but obviously I don't want to be foreshadowing too much down the line he, he, he comes off the bench to make quite an impact in this game that's the main takeaway in this game for me him just being absolutely kicked up and down the park Cameroon just did their best to blunt Argentina and to, to boot Maradona and he, and he looked a little bit like I mean he should be used to this by now I was surprised that maybe the, these sort of simplistic tactics were able to keep him, keep him a little bit quieter and, and only show us sort of glimpses of the great one you know is there much to, to the fact that it was just the fells that, that put him off or because there's a couple of things around why he, he maybe didn't hit the ground running here. A talk that a, an ingrown nail was, was affecting him at this point and he had to play with the aid of a, a carbon fibre bionic toe. That sounds like a completely Maradona thing to do. Yeah. Uh, I think he was using some other form of chemicals later on in his uh, career. Even at this point, like Maradona, the Maradona that we knew, he was he was past his best by this point. The injuries had kind of taken him down, and you know his personal life. I think he was at Seville at the point, and he wasn't, you know, he he, he wasn't the the peak player that he was. I don't think he was at Seville at that so point. I think he, he was he was mm -hmm. still still in Italy and and planning to leave. And and this kind of probably feeds into something you're saying, David. Just 
would he have been better off with the World Cup being absolutely anywhere else? Because it feels like the the crowd are right on top of him from the very start. I mean, he's the mo- he, he turns out to be over time, but certainly at this point, he'd been very, very unpopular in the rest of Italy. They let it be known in the early stages that they weren't happy to see him and that they were delighting in the fact that he was struggling. I think yeah, anybody well, knows, Maradona knows that. Uh, I don't think he was particularly too concerned about people not liking him. And um, I believe that, for, for people who don't know the geography of Italy, Napoli is in, south, in the southern part of the country, the, the the poorer part of the country, probably the neglected part of the country. And Napoli hadn't won the title for something like 50 years until he came. And when Maradona joined the club in, what was it, 1984? He came in and he said, you know, um, I'm going to bring you the league title or Serie A. Then, you know, he w- went ahead and did it. And his point before the World Cup in 1990 was more or less, you know, he said to the people in Napoli, I'm the only one who came here, gave you my word and actually followed through on it. I'm the only person who lived up to what I said. So support me. And it seems that an awful lot of people from Naples or Napoli did actually, you know, go and support Maradona rather than supporting Italy because I guess there wasn't an awful lot of um, feeling that a team made up of players from Juventus and AC Milan uh, really represented the whole country. There's some dispute as to how that effect of that was. Um, Maradona's appeal to the people of Naples to support him, but we, we do know for sure that it didn't go down well elsewhere in Italy, um, and that's one of the reasons why he was he was so he was so targeted by the crowd that day. And he famously said that um, he he was pr- particularly proud of the fact that the crowd in Milan hated him so much that for one day he got Milan to stop being racist and support an African team. <laughs> it, was, it was the way he said it as well he said he cured Italians of racism wasn't that nice <laughs> so belittling like but I, I think it did I think it's a mixture of these things seem to have stifled him and, and stifled Argentina as well where as you said Dave there's probably an argument to, there to say look they're not quite the team they were and the late introduction of, of Kanija I think proves to be quite a mistake because he, he really does um, influence the game hugely first of all with with, with a couple of red cards, probably a little bit harsh in, in the first inst- instance on uh, Andre Oman Bayek, who, is that a yellow card? I mean, it's, it's cynical, but it, it, it's a straight red card for that, I believe. I think we talk about football being sanitised, but like, even now, that's not a red card. Let's not beat around the bush. We're talking 1990, maybe there was a bit of kind of um, bias against African teams. I suspect probably part of it was that it was obvious from the start of the game that Cameron were sort of being a bit physical and targeting Maradona and maybe the referee wanted to put a stop to that as well but um, yeah it's it's never a red card and you can see we'll talk about it later on but throughout the tournament Cameroon were absolutely just targeted by referees and they got the short end of the stick throughout the tournament but particularly in this game six minutes gone getting a man sent off it's just kind of a it, it made things an awful lot more difficult for them doesn't it probably fall into as well Sherlock, a little bit of the sort of crackdown that FIFA were trying to do with cynical fouling. Absolutely, yeah. It was kind of a fashion at this period that there'd be a, a directive issued before every World Cup that was, you know, that was uh, intended to improve or change the character of the game in some way. And for this World Cup, it was all about cynical fouls. You can certainly see from the stats that the referee, Michel Vautreau, that definitely implemented that or took it to heart. I think Cameroon were penalised for 28 fouls compared to Argentina's nine in the game. 12 of those were on Maradona. The other, the other 16 must have been on Canadia then. <laughs> yeah, 
yeah, he got he was singled out for particularly brutal treatment when when he came on. But yeah, the, the referee did say that he felt obviously as a as a French speaker he felt under under great pressure from the Cameroonian players during the game who were you know accusing him of being prejudiced and biased and so forth and that you know he was there might have been a reason team. for that. There certainly that I mean the first red card to me is, is not a red card at all. You'll see far more worse at this tournament than that well, fell that well, probably well, weren't do, even called as a fell. You do fairly shortly after because Benjamin Massey has a look at that uh, and, and the two attempted fells on Kanija before. So can he, everyone has seen this clip. It's a glorious now. sequence. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, a few attempts at Kanija that he skips by and he's stumbling after the second and Benjamin Massing just absolutely lunges into him, loses his shoe in the process. Kanija goes flying up in the air. The Argentinians just absolutely pile in. So you're saying the Cameroonians were, were right up on the referee. I mean, the Argentinians... And they love a bit of this, crowding the referee, absolutely going crazy. And uh, the thing about this one is Benjamin Massey was already on a yellow. This wasn't a straight, I think it might have been a straight red, but he was already on a yellow. So I don't think we're going to, nobody going to argue this one was the yellow. Well, the ref actually shows him a straight red and then shows him the yellow retrospectively. So I don't know, how, I don't know what to make of that. But yeah, I think even in, by the standards in 1990, that's a straight red all day. And they've got to get back now, Cameroon. Kanija leads the charge. Kunde pulls out of the challenge. Not a good one by Ndi. Referee allows him to go on. Terrible challenge by Massing. An attempted block then by three players. Massing loses a boot and is lucky to stay on the pitch. If he is going to stay on the pitch. And I don't think he will. It's the red one coming out. Quite right. Quite right. I thought overall, funny enough, Ian, it was a clean game. I've put it down a lot to the Cameroons not really being able to tackle properly. I think they... Free kick later on in the game then is where the goal comes from. Um, and I actually think I mentioned Lorenzo earlier on, clearing one off the line. He had this sort of game of mixed fortunes because he, he gives away the free kick. And then when it's whipped in, I'm pretty sure it's him because a lot of people seem to award it to Masanaki, but it's Lorenzo who seems to slice it backwards up in the air really should have led with his head on that but he slices it upwards um the ball spins sort of back towards the Argentinian net and the the brother of the man sent off first there with the disputable right card Francois Oman Bayek rises above everybody to uh, flick it on and really it's, it's, it's actually a relatively poor flick because he, he gets it far too close to the goalkeeper Nevi Pompidou but it's an abysmal effort by the Argentinian goalkeeper to hold on to it and all he manages to do is nearly it looks like he nearly catches it and throws it back in the net. Like he, he, it's like it's too near to him. If it had been further away, he probably could have, he's probably ready to spring his body out. And instead, it's too near to him. So it nearly ends up under his arm and he pushes it backwards into the goal. But obviously, that late on in the game, that's a huge deal for Cameroon, given that they're, I mean, they're down to nine men and you just feel they're, they're not going to hold on as time goes on. And, and really, it, it proves to be that they do probably easier than they should have as well. I think they were 10 men at the time of the goal, but um, mm. it's um, I, I'd always kind of compare it to Ray Houghton's goal against England in 88. It's a similar sort of setup, you know, um, the dodgy sort of, uh, you know, flick, whatever you call it. Um, I think it was Mark Wright in 88, but um, it was a uh, Owen Biggs strike partner who kind of um, flicked that ball up. And, you know, it's not, a, it's not the best header in the world. It's not a bad header either, but yeah. As you say, the, the the goalkeeper probably um will look back on um on this game as one of his uh, least least crowning moments. 
he was um, he was known for his prodigious leap. He was known for out jumping Oman Biak for out jumping much big bigger defenders, rather like the well Richie Baker for anyone who remembers that reference. He's the Richie Baker of Yayonde. Nice. <laughs> I thought I thought you meant uh, Nevy for a minute. There was was known for his leap, and I was going to say he didn't, he didn't show it there. Um, but but the game ends one 0 much too. Maradona haters and Cameroon fans joy and there's, there's some serious noise around the stadium at that point and in the, the yeah the post-match press conferences I mean Dave you sort of touched on the treatment or, or whatever you want to call it of some of the African teams back then um, and the goal scorer Francois Alman Bayek uh, is spoken to after the game and he says no one thought we could we could do anything here against Maradona but we knew what we could do he says we hate it when European reporters ask us if we eat monkeys and have a witch doctor we are real football players and prove this tonight. And and I think, to be fair, there's, there's a fair bit of that reporting that would have very much gone on right throughout this tournament still, you know? Yeah, I think it sounds like kind of a, you know, a, a joke or being flippant, but that's kind of what some of the coverage was like. Um, we've been, the, the three of us have been looking at um, an article. I think it's a wire piece. There's no byline on it. I'm guessing it's AP or Reuters, the, the wire report on the game that begins with the words, Argentina were floored by African black magic as the world finals got off to a sensational start. And it kind of starts like that and it doesn't get any better. I think that's probably indicative of, not even the times, because I think people should have, you know, I, I think 1990, I think it, the, the point where, you know, you can claim ignorance is probably long past at that point, but it's kind of the, it's the, it's the attitude that was taken towards African teams at the time. And you can even see it, you know, a lot more recently in terms of, you know, any African team, the the kind of the stereotype about them is that, the, you know, they're defensively naive or whatever. And maybe Cameroon kind of on the day, maybe they, um, they, they betrayed a little bit of naivety. But in general, you know, I think there's always been that sort of thing where African teams have been underestimated and kind of made out to be, you know, not great defensively, not great organisationally, but, you know, they, they have a bit of kind of flair. And, I, you know, I think particularly in this tournament, particularly Cameroon, I think showed that sort of ignorance up playing 90 or 84 minutes with 10 men, the, the last few minutes with nine men. They showed just how good footballers they are. And I think throughout the tournament, we're going to be talking a little bit more about them. Right, well, that leaves us at the point of where we wrap up the first major, major upset of the tournament. We're going to check in, I think, next with how we're doing in the Irish camp because we are, what, three days away from the Republic of Ireland making their first World Cup experience. Yeah, so obviously this was, this was just a couple of days before Ireland's very first game in the World Cup. Um, the country was pretty much at, at fever pitch. You've heard it all before, but it was, it was true. Um, practically every ad on TV, I recall, had some kind of World Cup theme shoehorned into it, even where it was completely inappropriate. Every single ad in the newspapers was a pun on the winning team or goal, or it, it was really, at the time, even felt excessive. One of the stories that kind of came to light in the days before the game, and again, it's interesting because we were just talking about the way Africa is perceived and, you know, there's all this kind of discourse around whatever, witchcraft and juju and that kind of stuff. And actually, some of the some of the Cameroonian officials had pointed out that, you know, none of this was unknown in Europe. Didn't Catholic players cross, cross themselves every time they came on the pitch and stuff like that? But actually, in Ireland, it had gone, it had gone to even a further extreme because in a small village in Tipperary, 
a particular type of butterfly, which was exceptionally rare, had made an appearance. And people took this as an omen that Ireland were going to qualify from the group um, because the last time that butterfly had been seen was when Ireland had beaten England in Euro 88. And there was some, for some reason, the people who are reading these signs read into it that this had some special significance for Niall Quinn, who is not someone who shares the elegance of the butterfly then or now. But um, yeah, that was... That was a good omen the days before the game. But yeah, it was the Ireland camp was fairly, by all accounts, fairly relaxed, far more so than a lot of their competitors at this stage. But well, they had the butterfly, didn't they? So They, they, they knew they, about the butterfly. There was, there, was, <laughs> there was nothing to be concerned about. It's quite clear that this is the beginning of the fortune-telling animal cycle, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, with Paul the octopus and all that kind of stuff. So there you go, once again, before our time. Oh, Absolutely, did. but yeah, the kind of thing that, that might have attracted the censure of the church, actually, in, in 1990, <laughs> uh, this kind of pagan ritual, but obviously it was something that survived in the remotest re- reaches of Tipperary, and it was something that had already served Irish football well, so uh, when you're facing into your very first game in the World Cup Finals, you take what you can get. Well, that's it for day one of Italian 90. Uh, upcoming games, we're off to Group D tomorrow, as the UAE make their first ever appearance in the World Cup Finals against Colombia. Colombia, of course, nearly their first in, in, 30, in almost 30 years, I should say. And then the Soviet Union will hope to, to capitalise on Argentina's slip-up today as they face Romania. We'll see the hosts Italy in action as well as they welcome Austria to the Stadio Olimpico in Rome. about the match last night, which, as you can see, Cameroon, a two-big handful for Diego. Gotcha. Lovely. 